In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Amen. <laughs> yep, I believe it. Um, let's see. Oh, okay, so I wanted to just say a little bit more about the Eucharist, because, well, now that once I start talking, it's hard to stop. Um, but then I wanted to talk about death. Uh, so we'll talk about, because I mean, all the great retreats have something to say about death, heaven, and hell. I think we've had enough of hell, but heaven, wait, wait. So several years ago at one of our school masses, uh, one of the teachers came up to me looking a little bewildered. She was Jewish and rather late in life had rediscovered her faith. Uh, I like to think it was partly our influence that caused her to go back and get her bat mitzvah and that kind of stuff. And she says to me, you know, Father Augustine, I don't think Jesus was a very observant Jew. <laughs> and I asked her to explain. And she said, well, we take the laws of kosher pretty seriously. And a Jew would never, ever drink blood. No, no self-respecting rabbi would ever tell his congregation to go out and drink blood. And I said, well, why? He said, well, because blood is life, and life belongs to God, to God alone. If Jesus took the law seriously, she says, he would never tell anyone to drink blood, much less human blood. And she stops, and she closed her eyes, and she said, unless <laughs> he thought he was God, right? Jesus, you see, not only considers himself the author of life, he then gives that life, his life, his life blood to us. And it's not a metaphor. Um, I have this friend, a really dear friend, a good friend, uh, who writes fantasy books for atheist children uh, his name is Philip Pullman, and he, he helped me actually write my fantasy book, and I dedicated it to him and his wife, who has Parkinson's, by the way. Um, the problem with Christianity, he told me one evening over dinner, is that it teaches children to hate their bodies and to be afraid of sex, uh, to value heaven so much that they're willing to trash the earth. Uh, and the thing is, I've heard this cliche so many times, I just kind of took it for granted that it was true. But that night I started to think twice about it. Um, and I said to him, you know, the French don't seem to have a problem with their bodies. And the Italians don't seem to be afraid of sex, nor the Irish or the Spanish. In fact, I got to thinking later that it's only this like, bizarrely repressive Victorian Christianity, sort of a Protestant prudishness that has got us so twisted up in our own heads that we fear alcohol and dancing. Uh, only the British would find the word toilet so offensive that they had to replace it with the initials WC, wash closet. The belief in Christ's real presence in the Eucharist 
our unwavering insistence that we literally drink Christ's blood and eat his flesh is exactly what saves us from reducing Christianity to a religion of the book, turning it into something that's just ethics and ideas and laws and words. We can't hate our bodies because Jesus' blood flows in our veins. Our cells are literally composed of his. Um, as I was writing this reflection, I was reminded of a story my sister told me about one of her kids. At this time, she had two daughters. Uh, at the time of the story, they were four and six. And the youngest, the younger of the two would whisper her to herself during consecration at mass. So my sister started listening very carefully and discovered to her, to her dismay, really, that when the priest would lean over the host and say, this is my body, Mary would say to herself, eh, no, I didn't. <laughs> and, and when he'd say the words, this is my blood, she'd say, eh, that's not. <laughs> and so my sister spent the next several days trying to explain to her the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, she wasn't entirely convinced that she had succeeded. And how could she have? I mean, it took Thomas Aquinas five volumes, um, and he was writing for adults. But then, then there was this ecumenical prayer service at Mary's preschool. It was a, a non-religious prayer service. Uh, how such a thing is even possible, uh, only God knows. But afterwards, my sister asked her how it went, how it went and Mary thought for a second, and she said, well, Mom, it was okay, but, you know, Jesus wasn't there. <laughs> for all of her lack of sophistication regarding sacramental theology, this kid did have a sense of what Cardinal Ratzinger called the dimension of the sacred in the liturgy. Now, how exactly we will rediscover this dimension of the sacred is is up to you, I think, really. Uh, no doubt it will entail a return to the catechism, a return to the scriptures, a return in a special way to the sacrament um, and some of our ancient traditions. But for now, I'm just gonna leave it there because I've already talked about the Eucharist. Um, and actually, nope, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on to death right now and save, uh, save this for last. This is so great. There's, there's a sermon that John Chrysostom gave for Easter that's really brilliant, but I think it, it works better as an ending to a sermon than a, than a middle. Um, so let's move on to death. Then I want to say something about confession, make a pitch for confession, and then I'll, give, I'll tell you his sermon. Um, pop quiz, uh, why do monks wear black? Since you got the first one wrong, I'll ask you again so you can. No, you're a terrible person. Ah, well done. Now, there you go. Yeah, you see? She's catching on. You can't go wrong with another answering a question with a question. Well done. Now, well, I'll tell you what I think. I think it's to keep Siri from sin. Um, but also uh, because it reminds us of our death. Every monk is dressed for his own funeral. 
Um, and in fact, at my monastery, the older you are, the closer your room is to the graveyard. So our 91-year-old Father Benedict, his window overlooks his future grave. Um, St. Francis de Sales said, only one thing in life is certain, you will die, and sooner than you think. <laughs> Admittedly, Francis de Sales could be a bit of a downer, but then again, <laughs> if you take him as seriously as he takes himself, you can begin to see the logic of his words. Uh, the end is near, as they say, and, and that's particularly easy, I think, to feel right now. If you spend a moment or two on the internet, it's not long before you come across some prophet of doom who sees all this as a sign of the end of times. And, and of course it is. There will be powerful earthquakes, famines, plagues from place to place, and awesome sights and mighty signs will come from the sky. Uh, other folks claim that this is divine retribution for one or another of society's great evils. Uh, I have a friend who makes YouTube videos uh, what's his name? He calls this, he, he called COVID the great chastisement and was chastised by his own superiors. Uh, he's a charismatic, they're charismatic, I'm sure you heard of him. Uh, I'll remember it later. Who cares who he is? Anyway, the point is that, was that? No? Okay. Um, I have totally lost my train of thought. Of course, uh, and of course it is, okay? Sin came into the world through one man, and his sin brought death with it, okay? Even if all these things weren't happening, who of us plans to be here in another hundred years, right? So this is why monks wear black, to remind ourselves, in the words of St. Benedict, to keep death daily before our eyes. Now, the mark of a Christian, wrote St. Augustine, is to watch daily and hourly and to stand prepared in a state of total responsiveness, pleasing to God, knowing that the Lord will come at an hour that he does not expect. This is the mark of a Christian. And yet, I'll bet very few of us when we woke up this morning seriously considered the possibility that the world might end today. Even after hearing these readings, it's hard to imagine that the world might actually end anytime soon, really. Um, but <clears throat> I know a group of people who really do think like that, and they aren't crazy people or cultists. Uh, they live in Creve Corps, Missouri, at the town and country home for the elderly. And I say mass out there every month, and these folks at the town and country home, they, they consider it a real possibility that their world will come to a sudden and immediate end. Um, I said mass there a couple of weeks ago, actually, and well, and since most of them sleep through my homilies anyway, I, I really like to do the whole hellfire and brimstone thing. Uh, in fact, the louder and more animated I get, the more they seem to enjoy it. So, so I really suck it to them. And, uh, and for their part, they tend to take what I say with a grain of salt. Um, so I was on a real rampage this one weekend, and I said, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Who knows, any one of you could be dead tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
And Marion, who sits in the front row, she wakes up just long enough to say, hell, I thought I'd be dead three weeks ago. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, now I understand why Jesus had such a soft spot for the poor, right? Because they get it. I mean, they are that much closer to death than the rest of us. And they realize, whether they like it or not, that each day is a gift. Um, and because they know it, it's not hard for them to see the urgency of Christ's message. Um, so we've all had a bit of a wake-up call the last couple of years, and death seems a little more real, maybe. And, uh, and that's a sobering thought, but it's also mysteriously a comfort. Uh, a year, uh, well, not too long, I said a year ago, it wasn't that long ago, I walked past Father Benedict's cell, uh, and he had chosen, and his room, I told you, overlooks his future grave. And he was looking out the window at the spot where he's going to go. And, um, and, you know what, I'm just going to tell you the story, darn it. Um, anyway, as I walked by, I said, good morning, Father Benedict. He said, good morning, Father Augustine. And I said, how you doing? He said, just waiting to die. <laughs> and I said, are you Okay. And he said, oh, yeah. He says, I'm great. He said, in fact, I couldn't be happier. He's like, but you got to have something to look forward to. <laughs> right? And so this is, one of, this is the first reason why monks keep the day of their death before their eyes, because there's really only one way to get to heaven, and you, unless you're, well, I was going to say unless you're the Virgin Mary, but that's debatable, too. No, no, she didn't die. She there's the, well, never mind, I'm not going there. See what I mean about heresy, you got to be careful. Um, certainly Elijah didn't die, or no, eh, never mind. Hey, uh, the, the thing is, there's no other way to get to heaven. We've got to die first. And, and, and so we look forward to the day of our death. Uh, in fact, uh, remember Cardinal Bernardin of kind of blessed memory, um, was when he discovered he had cancer, he... He said, well, the, some uh, journalist from the New York Times interviewed him, and he said, well, I welcome death as a friend. And that was the headline, Bishop welcomes death as friend. You know, it doesn't make any sense to the world, but it does to us, because we, I mean, this life is all about heaven. It's, it's all oriented to heaven, and there's no, and, and we look forward to that. On the other hand, I, I, like, I do insist on wearing black vestments when I say funerals because death is the consequence of original sin, right? I mean, it's something sad for the time being. Um, and, and keeping that sadness, that, that shock before your eyes has an effect on the way you treat people. Um, every monastery has... Hello? Uh, every monastery is basically a microcosm of the church. There are all sorts of monks. We're not like religious orders, which are more like teams, right? We're more like a family. So there's the creepy uncle, and there's the senile old granddad, and there's the overachieving brother, and so on and so forth. Uh, so every monastery has fat monks, and skinny monks, and lazy monks, and hardworking monks, and stupid monks, and smart monks, and... Uh, and every community I've ever visited of Benedictines, and it's now been quite a few, uh, has had a crazy monk, like, like a, nut, a nutty monk. 
Um, and our nutter was Brother Ed, Brother Edward Dahlheimer. And by crazy, I, I don't mean he was like, you know, like crazy bra. I mean, he was like, he had invisible animals in his room that talked to him crazy. Um, he was also, I think, what they call like uh, obsessive compulsive. He would come in and he'd make sure like every utensil at his dinner place was perpendicular to the table edge and all of his books had to be in a certain order and, and he'd come into choir early. He, in his defense, he was also kind of a genius too. At the age of 85, he taught himself the harmonica. Uh, couldn't read music, so he invented his own system of notation based on colors, which um, if you ever come visit me in the monastery, I'll take you down to the archives and show you. He committed over 500 bluegrass songs to memory and wrote them all out in colors. Um, yeah, well, he played them during mass, which wasn't exactly the <laughs> ideal by anyone's account, but what can you do? Um, and, okay, and to make matters worse, poor brother Ed, well, oh, he was also kind of an authority on certain specific things. Among them was uh, Ernest Hemingway. He could tell you anything about Ernest Hemingway, when he was married and how many times he was married and who his kids were, and, and, and he owned an autographed first edition of The Sun Also Rises, um, which I once asked if I could see, actually, and, and he said, um, Brother Augustine, it will be a cold day in hell before you touch anything of mine, of any value whatsoever, because Brother, well, because you, you got to understand, Brother Ed and I are, not, I'm not obsessive compulsive, right? And I'm late for everything. That my, my brothers have started calling me the late Father Augustine. And, and my novice master used to say, that monkey never leaves a room once. Because right? I'm always forgetting something. And I'm always a mess, and all my books are out of order. And poor Ed had to sit next to me for seven years in choir. And, and, not proud of it, I may have rearranged his books once or twice. This is good, okay? Um, so, anyway, the point is, we didn't get along, right? And then, and then the abbot, in his great wisdom, put me in charge of the kitchen, and then put Brother Ed in charge of the dishes. So we were always, always in each other's business. We were always fighting, me and Ed. Which, of course, in a monastery means he looks at me and goes, I look at him and go. <laughs> and that's kind of it, really. But, but it mean, looks become mean a lot more when you don't talk much. So it was, um, we, we had a long and bitter rivalry. Um, the, the thing is, I didn't last very long as the kitchen master uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and the, as, and the, in fact, I remember the day the abbot fired me. He said to me, brother, your gifts lie in the area of the intellectual more so than the practical. Which is his way of saying, like, you forgot to feed us again. <laughs> um, anyway, he sent me off to Oxford. So, but as a, as a thank you to the monastery for being patient with me, I made a big feast for the monks. Um, well, it was terrible, actually, but the, the, but the final course was great. I made seven chocolate walnut torts, okay, which, yeah, which are 
I usually have to explain to the kids, a tort is like a cake, but with no air in it, so there's no wasted stomach space. Um, and I made seven of them for only 21 monks because I wanted to make sure there was enough for me to eat at least a tort that week. Um, and, and so when I was done, when I, when I finished the, the feast and I cleaned everything up, I, I, I took one of the torts, I cut a big chunk out and I wrapped it very carefully in aluminum foil, hid it behind the mayonnaise in the, because nobody touches the mayonnaise in the monastery. And, um, and went off to bed. The next morning I woke up extra early so I could, so I, so I got, so I get my cup of coffee and I got my favorite chair and a book and I put it in the cloister and I went back to get my chocolate tort and sure enough it was the right where I had left it but when I unwrapped it, yeah, thank you, yeah. <laughs> Now, it wasn't gone. It was worse than gone. Someone had taken a bite out of it. And it hadn't just taken a bite out of it. It had, like, I could see the teeth marks in the tort. Like, and then, and then, managed somehow to wrap it up exactly as I had left it, right? And there was only one man. Cable, I, even now, I, the depths of rage that well up, like I cried out to God for vengeance. Um, but first, I calmed myself down, and I went and I cut another piece of tort, wrapped it in aluminum foil, put it back in the fridge behind the mayonnaise. But first I soaked it in Lee and Pepper's super hot Cajun sauce. <laughs> so the next morning when I woke up, there was chocolate torch sprayed all over the refrigerator door. It was all over the floor, the walls. It was like the greatest moment of my life, really. <laughs> Vengeance was mine. And all day, you know, I'd see Brother Ed in the hall, I'd be like, is that funny? <laughs> um, so anyway, that was pretty much it. I, I left for Oxford and uh, while I was there, I got this email from the abbot telling me that Brother Ed was very sick. Had nothing to do with the chocolate tort. It was, he got cancer. And then a couple of months later, I got a note from him telling me he had died. And then all of a sudden, yeah, I started to think to myself, maybe that wasn't the greatest moment of my life. You know, maybe, maybe I could have been a little nicer to Brother Ed. Um, I mean, he was, after all, a crazy old guy. He was trying to do, he was trying his best. Um, but I forgot about it after a time and finished my studies. And when I got back to the monastery, I uh, got up to my room. When I opened the door, there's a little paper package on the desk in my room, tied, it was taped very carefully and tied with twine. And I figured I knew who it was from. But I cut the twine off and opened it up. And it was Brother Ed's copy of The Sun Also Rises. Right? Yeah, uh, so it, it had a little sticky on it that said, sorry, yeah. Uh, <laughs> stop it, you're making me cry. Um, but this again is, this is another reason why we are called to keep our death before our eyes because it has a sense, it has a way of putting things in perspective, right? I mean, death is the wages of sin and we all wish we could live forever, but the people around us won't. And if we try to keep that in mind, we might treat them a little nicer. Um, 
I want to talk, okay, so that's death. I did want to talk about confession and one last bit on the Eucharist. Um, I, I, I mean, I've always valued confession. It, I, it's funny how we fear it. Even, even I, who go every week to someone I live with, get nervous before I go to confession. I have to assume that it's demonic, this irrational fear of telling somebody you're a scumbag. Um, I, at one point, I did have a confessor who said, so you're a scumbag, so what? Now everybody just knows the truth? I mean, what, what was bothers you about that? Um, but I taught a class to seniors, oh, I still teach a class to seniors on how to defend Catholic dogma. And uh, we, went, we go through all the controversial teachings of the church, from gay marriage to, well, it's usually always about, the kids call it sex and Nazis, because pretty much every discussion, no matter what we're talking about, ends up with one of those two. The joke is that if we're lucky, we end up with sexy Nazis, but that's another. Um, but one year in particular, my seniors were mysteriously fond of top 10 lists. So rather than try to swim against the grain, I decided to join them in this. And every Friday, we'd make a top 10 list related to what we had learned during the week. So after the week on liturgy, uh, they made a list of the top 10 ways to upgrade your soul, right? After the week on sin and evil, they made a list of top 10 ways to go to hell. <laughs> After the week on chastity, they made a list of the top 10 reasons you won't date my sister. <laughs> and after the week on confession, they made a list of the top 10 reasons to go to confession, especially if you don't want to. And I'm gonna read you their list because it's pretty brilliant. Um, well, actually, no, the first five are stupid, so I'm gonna skip them, but the last five really were great. So, um, so here it is, the top five reasons to go to confession, especially if you don't want to, uh, as compiled by Father Augustine's senior theology class at the St. Louis Priory School. So rule, rule, and by the way, these are their words, not mine. So I, I'm plagiarizing this entire second half of the little talk here. But number five reason to go to confession, especially if you don't want to, is you ain't bigger than the church. It, these all have explanations that they wrote as well. No matter how much time you spend thinking about it, the sum total of your wisdom does not add up to more than the sum total of the church's wisdom. You're not holier than Mother Teresa. You're not smarter than Thomas Aquinas. You're not wiser than St. Francis. And you're not older than the church. So what are the odds that you're right and the entire Catholic Church all its saints, all its theologians, and all its bishops are wrong. The odds are against you. So that's number five. Number four is better safe than sorry. How can you really be sure that you don't need the sacrament? How can you really be sure that you aren't guilty of some real unrepented evil? If you can't be absolutely certain, why take the chance? Uh, number five, so number five, not bigger than the church, not far better safe than sorry. Number three, the Bible says so. Um, the letter of St. James tells us, confess your sins to one another. Now, it is understandable not to want to go to Father Augustine for confession. But then again, we bet you don't confess your sins to anyone else. 
Given the alternatives, a priest is probably the safest bet going, especially because he loses his job if he talks about it. Uh, I would add, we not only lose our job, we also lose our soul. We, it's one of those few uh, mortal sins that only the Pope can forgive. Um, so, number three, so, yeah, okay, maybe you don't want to go to a priest, but go to someone, still, safest bet going is the priest. Uh, number two, so, let's see, where are we? Five, eight, bigger than the church, four, better say this already, three, the Bible says so. Two, number two reason to go to confession is don't be stupid. Admittedly, yeah, admittedly, it requires a little explanation. Let's say you haven't been to confession in, okay, wait, hold on. Let's say you haven't been to confession in a while and you don't really think it's necessary. Consider your logic. Quote, I don't fully understand the church's teaching on confession, you say, or you have to if you're being honest with yourself. The church's teaching on sacramental confession doesn't make sense to me, therefore I will disobey it. If you followed this pattern of logic for too long, you'd be dead. Imagine if, as a child, you said to yourself, Mom said not to play in the street. I don't understand or agree with this decision, therefore I will disobey it. Yes, that's stupid. Now, we are willing to grant that there is a possibility that your mother might tell you something that would do you harm. Say, for example, that your mother said, Son, it's a beautiful day. Go play in the street. In that case, you might do well to disregard her advice. But if she said, Son, it is very important that you run out right now and play in the street, you would have to assume that she knows something that you didn't. Maybe there's a thief in the house. Maybe there's a gas leak. Who knows? But if you decide not to obey something she has specifically told you to do, there better be some amazing proof to the contrary. But <clears throat> that doesn't tend to be the case here. Few Catholics, in our experience, quit going to confession because they foresee some horrible evil coming of it. But even if this were so, on what evidence, and I particularly like this phraseology here, on what vast theological treasury does one draw in order to come to such a life-changing decision? That is, to deliberately abandon one of the seven sacraments when all the saints, all the teachings of the church, and every priest and bishop say otherwise? No one would ever use this kind of logic when it came to their bodies. Um, but I went to Catholic school, you say. I was an altar boy. I know Catholic teaching. <laughs> we can just imagine going to a doctor for a yearly physical. The doctor says, son, you have a life-threatening illness, and unless I give you this medicine, you will die. And you reply, excuse me, doc, but I've taken high school biology, and I worked the welcome desk at the hospital, so I think I'll just treat myself instead. This is something that never ceases to amaze us. Most people in our culture are willing to accept the advice of experts when it comes to medicine, science, history, plumbing, automobile repair, but when it comes to theology, suddenly everyone's an expert. Well, okay, if you say so, but here's one last incentive. If you've been on the fence about sacramental confession, reason number one is superpowers. Confession gives you superpowers, no joke. Yes, it is possible to have your sins forgiven just by going straight to God. 
provided you are perfectly penitent. But the church is offering you a tool which not only forgives the sins you confess, it also forgives the sins you forgot to confess. And as if that weren't enough, it gives you extra superhuman power to resist those sins the next time around. So when you opt out of confession, you're not just opting out on an extra, you are deliberately refusing a miraculous gift of God. Why take the chance on missing out on so extraordinary a gift? So that's, those are the top five reasons to go to confessions according to, go to confession, according to the Priory senior class. I want to run back to Eucharist, Eucharist now and end this little talk with, well, kind of end. We have one more. We have failure left, but that's not wrong. Um, with a little sermon that I found, well, not, yeah. It's um, early in the fifth century, St. John Chrysostom delivered this sermon on Easter Sunday. And it was so brilliant and so inspiring that in the Eastern Catholic Church, is required that every pastor read it every year on Easter Sunday. For the last 1600 years on Easter Sunday, at the start of the Divine Liturgy, this sermon and no other has been delivered. But of course we missed it because we're Roman Catholics. Um, so I'm gonna read it to you now. This is my own translation. If there are any pious people here today who love God, let them enjoy this splendid and radiant feast. If any of you have been wise servants, you may blissfully enter into the joy of your Lord. If any of you have worked hard at fasting, now you may receive your reward. If any of you toiled from the very first hour now is the time to receive your just wage. But if any of you showed up late for this feast, if any of you arrived at the third hour, well, join in anyway. In fact, if you waited until the sixth hour, you should not be afraid, for you will not be deprived of anything. However, if any of you procrastinated and dallied until the eleventh hour, God, don't worry. The master loves to grant honors and will grant and will receive the first just as the last. He gives rest to the one who came at the 11th hour just as he does to the one who toiled from the first. To the one he gives, on the other he showers gifts. He accepts good works, but he also accepts good intentions. <laughs> he honors labors and God praises mere resolutions. And so let everyone enter into the joy of the Lord. Let the first as well as the last receive the reward. Let the rich and the poor celebrate together. Let hard workers and lazy workers honor this day. Let those who fasted rejoice on this day and those who did not fast, oh, let them rejoice too. The table is overflowing with food. Let all be satisfied. The calf is fattened. Let no one go away hungry. Let everyone enjoy the cup of faith. Let everyone receive the richness of grace. Let none grieve at their poverty, not this day, for the kingdom that belongs to all people has been revealed. 
Let no one weep for their sins on this day, for forgiveness shines forth from the tomb. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. The one whom death imprisoned has annihilated death. The one who descended into hell made hell his prisoner. Jesus caused hell anguish when it tasted his flesh. When Isaiah first saw this, he exclaimed, hell was terrified when it found you in the underworld. Well, it was terrified because it was abolished. Hell was terrified because it was mocked. Hell was terrified because it was slain. It was terrified because it was overthrown. Hell was terrified because it found itself chained. It seized a corpse and discovered God. It grabbed hold of this earthly thing and it wound up coming face to face with the divine. It seized the visible but was conquered by the invisible. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are abolished. Christ is risen and the demons are thrown into a panic. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life now reigns. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of the dead. For in rising from the dead, Christ became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Alleluia. So I believe we have now, I've got a brother showing up in about five minutes who will be hearing confessions as well. But I think we have an hour now of silent prayer and then we fail and leave. So in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, God, give us the grace to be saints. Because what else really is there? Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.